There you go. Now, the next question people with kids ask is, well, now what are we going to do? Because you're thinking, is Jeff going to be our children's pastor? And you know what? Yes. No. Um, just want to let you know what's happening with children's ministry. So the, the, one of the things I told you is that one of the great things to look at over the past season of our church is how God has provided. And um, this is really unbelievable. I, it's, it's hard to explain in this short amount of time how great God is at providing. But um, basically, I called someone who has a, a ton of years of experience, who has worked at Mariners for a long time, who is from this area. And um, I said, hey, would you want to help us as we're in transition? And this person also knew um, Rachel. And so I said, you know, she's in transition. I know you guys know, you know each other. And I said, would you want to step into this? And she goes, she says, yeah, let me think about it. She and I'm like, don't think about it. Just tell me the answer. You know, like one of those things. <laughs> and I, of course, I have to play it like, totally take whatever time you need. But is five seconds enough? Because, you know, like we're really in time crunch. Next day she calls and says, I want to do this. Her name is Susan Hulse. Now, if you, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I heard someone say that over here. Susan, if you, might, if you recognize the last name Hulse, her son was, his name was, her son still is, her son's name Ethan. Ethan was our worship leader for a number of years here. And so she's been around Mariners for a long time. She knows our church culture, is a part of our family. And so in fact, when I talked to her and said, would you consider this? She goes, this actually feels like family. It feels like I'm coming home in so many ways. So she has got tons of experience. She is very, very gifted. And so she's going to um, take over this role in the interim while we try to figure out if there's a more permanent solution. But we are, our bases are covered by great people God provides. There you go. There you go. Good stuff, right? Okay. All right. Now, we got, we got a lot to do. I'm very excited, like I told you today, and I'm, I want to get through all of it because I feel like God's going to do some really, really powerful stuff today. Not that he doesn't always, but I just have a sense that God's going to be up to something kind of surprising that might catch some of you off guard in a really, really great way. So we're in a series called Reset, and uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago when we started this series, I, I told you a story that it, it bears repeating, which is this, this story about my, my friend who was standing in her, in her kitchen, and she says, you know, amid all the over, all being overwhelmed and all this stuff and all of her kids and everything else, and she's looking at me and, she, and, and my wife and her husband, and we're all standing there, she goes, don't you guys wish, remember this, she goes, don't you guys wish you could just be in a coma for a couple weeks? <laughs> and we were like, that's like one of the most serious medical traumas you can have. She's like, I know, but I just, I, I don't want to, I don't have the ability to keep going at the pace I'm going. And I don't have the ability to tell everybody I can't deliver what they need. So I need an, I need an excused absence from everything. I want a coma. I'm like, nobody chooses a coma. We have a problem when we want a coma. And I think as we're talking about this stuff, the more and more I talk to people, the more and more, the more they think about that idea, the more they go, yeah, that'd be great. You know, I think that wouldn't be, maybe not, maybe not a couple weeks, just like a day or two, or I can't answer a phone call. Nobody's asking me to do anything. I don't have to study or work, or there's no pressure on me to get kids anywhere, or whatever else it might be. I just want a little bit of a time to be able to do that. The truth is that everybody needs a reset at some point or another in their lives. No one was intended to burn the candle at both ends indefinitely. I mean, in fact, we are built in, there's a built-in limitation in who we are that keeps us from being able to do that kind of thing all the time. And so we need a reset because we were made to burn out. Weird, right? There's this biblical mandate that kind of you see throughout the Bible where you see people and you see the way that God speaks to people about this burnout and this intensity with which we tend to go at everything and forget that we need to rest. It comes in the form of, of some sort of like a little pattern, sort of a six days of something or a six times of something and then a rest. In the very beginning of the Bible, you have that there is six days in which God did the work of creation and the seventh day he rested. And he said to his people, you guys do all the work you've got to do in six days and the seventh day... Set that one apart. Let me provide. Let me be the one 
who holds you. Don't try to make everything on your own. Don't try to acquire stuff. Don't try to take advantage of just rest. Make that holy. But the holiest thing we could do would be to not do stuff. And then it gets even a little bit crazier as you look in the Bible. You start seeing that there is this, not only six days of work and then a one day of rest, eventually there comes this, this decree, so to speak, in which God says, work for six years with that six days on, one day rest pattern. Work for six years and then have a seventh year, a Sabbath year. Or you just don't, you just let the land provide for you. Which we all go, that's crazy, right? <laughs> and then it gets even crazier. Because God says after the seventh Sabbath year, so you got 49 years, the 50th year, have another Sabbath year. So you remember, that's a, that's a, a year of not working, and then another year of not working. Some of you are like, yeah, that's called college, okay? Uh, you know, my last two years of college. Now, you look at this and you go, this is insane. And part of what happens in this, with this 50th year, which is called the Jubilee, it's a whole land whole life reset for everybody and it's incredibly i mean you don't even see there's not historians debate biblical historians debate whether or not the the god's people actually ever really truly put this into practice because it's so absurd here's the way it's written in the bible as you see it uh my man screen's a little farther back here we go uh here we go leviticus 25 8 9 count off seven sabbath years seven times seven years so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. This is in case you're bad at math. It's seven times seven, right? There you go. <laughs> then have a trumpet sound everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. So the word jubilee is kind of a weird word. You know, when I hear the word, it makes me think of like a Disney parade or something. Like it, it doesn't really have that much of a... It has a weird sort of connotation. But what it means is everybody in all circumstances is going to be set free. Debts are canceled. People who owe, their debts are canceled. If people owe you, sorry to say, their debts are canceled too. If you own land that somebody else owned, you get, they get to take that land back. If you have people that are working off debts, meaning that they're indentured servants, slaves, you, you let them go. Everybody gets set free. It's a whole land, whole world reset. Woo! Kind of the reaction, right? Now, when you start talking about a reset, it's like God knew we'd drive ourselves crazy. No matter, even if we knew we needed a reset, he just knew we would drive ourselves crazy with whatever we could. And so we are in a place. As I talk to people, they talk to you, as you talk to each other, my guess is that dinnertime conversations that are honest with your friends are ones in which you say, I don't know how much longer I can live up to this kind of pace. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, and i got to figure out a way to get a reset in my life. That's what I want to talk about this. Let's pray, and we'll get into today's message. Father, we imagine a reset, and we consider it more a fantasy than anything else. When you think about it, we think about our lives as kind of a paranoid claustrophobia in most senses, like we heard Jordan talk about last week. Jesus, we have big questions about reset. We have big questions about what our life is supposed to look like. Father, we're tired. Even as uh, we were praying this morning, hearing folks, Jesus, talk about real illnesses and real sickness and pain and sorrow in their life. Jesus, we need you to meet us in those. The trials we've caused ourselves, the trials we've brought on ourselves, Father, we need you more than we ever have. And so, Father, for just a moment, we pause 
that you might give to us a sense of what you might want to do in us today, that we might hear from you. We give you, Father, a moment to focus and to consider how you might speak to us. So Jesus, we give you this silence, just about 10 seconds or so, a stillness, a reset within, within the service. Father, help us to find the reset our hearts long for, what our souls need, the reset only you can give us. In your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, if you want to follow along in, in you know, today's message, in your, in your bulletin, you got an outline. There's some stuff you can follow along there. Also, if you want to kind of more, you know, follow along in your own Bible or take notes, however, we're going to be Acts 16 for most of today. Take a look there. But um, uh, let me just, as I was thinking about today, I was thinking about what's like the biggest thing in your life. You don't have to answer this out loud because that's going to be too personal for a lot of you. But what's like the biggest thing in your life? I was thinking about, if I ask someone, if I ask one of you, what's like the biggest thing you've got going on? What's the biggest thing? What's the most present thing in your life? What is it right now? You'd have a lot of different answers. And I realize, in a room this big with this many people, this different many life stages and things like that, that answer shifts over time. You know, I was thinking about my, my six-year-old. The biggest thing in his life is the jar of Nutella. And it, then it becomes the biggest thing in our kitchen and our dog and our furniture and everything else too because it's everywhere and he just he, if he can find a way to get permission the costco size thing again costco there you go but uh, the biggest possible container of nutella and he will i mean he'll 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 have a pretzel you know those stick pretzels it's just like just like a it's not a curled pretzel it's just a stick he'll just dip it he'll, he'll he'll be holding that but he'll dip his hand all the way into it so it's like all over himself and he's just like what it's just a little bit of nutella and it's like okay that's the biggest thing in his life biggest things in his life include things like that includes our dog. That's Kirby's big deal in his life. The biggest thing in his life is being able to have control, the remote control from his brother and sister. He'll hide both of them. He'll take them with him everywhere he goes. We find them up in the bedroom all the time. No one can change the channel on there underneath my son's bed. I mean, he just wants to make sure he has, these are the biggest things in his life. But I think his life progresses. We start thinking about different kinds of things. We start thinking about the biggest things in our life are our friends. We start thinking about the, the, the relationships that we have, the things that we, the, the consideration we have about marriage, about being married, about trying to be married, about trying to stay married. The biggest things in our life are about when we move houses. Oh my gosh, how present that is. The biggest things in our life are about studying for AP tests. They're about studying for college. They're about trying to graduate from college. They're about all of this kind of stuff. They're about becoming empty nesters or how to live as empty nesters. And we have all of these biggest things in our lives. And most of us, we start talking about a reset. We start thinking, I could have a reset. God will give me that. Well, that's not a wrap. God will give me that once those things are resolved, good or bad. When they're resolved, then I'll be able to find the reset I've been longing for for so long. But for so many of us, the overwhelming majority, I want to use the word all, but I think there's probably an exception, but I'll just use the word all anyway. I think for all of us, that day never, never really comes. And so we're faced with an entirely different question. It's not just simply, what do I do when I get some time to have a reset, which is how most of us think. We start imagining what retirement will be like. Like, wow, that's cool. Once you have your first kid, you're like, it's going to be great to be retired someday, right? <laughs> but we're faced with a different question. It's this one right here. What do we do if a reset is the one thing we need, but the one thing we can't have? What do we do 
if it's the one thing we desperately need but we can't have. Some of us, like I said, my friend would do, would pray for a coma. <laughs> but that doesn't seem real practical. What do we do if the one thing we need is a reset but we can't seem to find it, we can't have it? I think most of us live in a reality that feels about like that. Because periodic, this is our normal, a periodic rest that we think about just isn't normal for most of us. We imagine that someday it'll happen, but it never really happens, and we keep on grinding, we keep on burning the candle at both ends, and we keep wondering, is it really going to ever happen? And even when we plan breaks, even when we try, we put on the calendar, we're going to take a vacation, we're going to take some time, even if it's just stay home, we're just not going to, we're just going to not do stuff. Even when we plan for those things, how many of you guys, just by show of hands, you have planned a vacation and... In order to get ready to take that time off, you worked harder than you ever have in your life, resulting in that within day two of the vacation, you got sick. We don't even, I mean, even when we try to take a break, we're terrible at it because we work so hard. We are, it's so, our normal kind of life is this kind of feeling that says, I need a break and I can't find it. And even when I do find it, it doesn't seem work. Normal is this reality that everybody's stuck in. Normal is the reality in which we go, I'm overwhelmed it seems like, especially where we live here in Orange County. It's like, man, I'm always overwhelmed. I'm almost to burnout. I mean, we live, our normal is like this. We live, some of us, we live lives we didn't choose. We live in situa- family situations we didn't ask to be born into. We have loved ones who suffer illnesses and diseases that they, they don't deserve. We wonder why dads and moms and sisters and friends and cousins and nieces and nephews and why they suffer and why we suffer diseases and sickness and illness and trial that they did not choose and they do not deserve. And we go, we look at God and we go, God, why is this? Why, why am I in this? Or why are they in this? We go, God, why... Why doesn't ISIS have these problems? Honestly, we just, honestly, we go, we want those people. We want those people to get diseases. Why do, why do we have to, why do kids have to get diseases? We don't get answers. And we live in this situation in which we go, this is our normal, our normal is awful. And we have a fantasy about other people's normal that it's somehow better than ours. But everybody, if you talk to people, they'll tell you the truth. It's, if they're honest, it's hard all and there are moments where there's some great moments where God breaks through in powerful ways. But the experience for most of us is that's really hard. Normal is hard. Normal is overwhelming. So what do you do? Throughout the Bible, there's this, throughout the biblical narrative, there's this pattern, theme. It is as inexplicable as anything else in the Bible to me, personally. I mean, as someone who studies and teaches the Bible a lot, this is as difficult as anything I've ever seen in the Bible. And... It is, it is somehow still present. It's that people in the Bible seem to have access, the faithful people in the Bible seem to have access to a kind of reset I've never known in the midst, in the midst of the most difficult trial. In other words, people in the Bible aren't simply saying, God, I'm so, I'm, I can't wait for the time when everything ends, then I'll be able to thank you. What they seem to be saying is in the midst of the most difficult, most oppressive, Sometimes the most evil kind of trial, people are finding a way to a reset that is refreshing and whole and it's honest and I just don't 
believe them. When I look at it, I go, it's not true. It doesn't happen. Yet it's all over the Bible. See if you connect to this idea, because maybe God has something for us in there. Acts 16, 22. Uh, Paul and Silas, these guys are walking through a city called Philippi, and here's what happens to them. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. I'll give you the context in a second. Uh, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. Welcome to Philippi, right? And this is what happened to them. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown in prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Verse 24, when he received these orders, he put them in the, in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, here's what's happened. Paul and Silas walk into the city. These guys are walking around doing other, they're kind of talking about Jesus, about who he is, what he had done. People are responding to him. People are responding to Jesus. They're responding to this message. And they walk into the city of Philippi. And this girl, who is a slave of these two guys, uh, is, uh, is starts talking to these, starts kind of taunting um, Paul and Silas. And the way she's taunting, it's really bizarre. If you want to read the story another time, I don't have time to go totally into it. But she, she's taunting them by saying, you know, basically, you serve the number, well, you serve the highest God. This is who you, and they're basically, they're kind of like, that's true, but you're saying it wrong. And so finally Paul, in his frustration, turns around and says, stop. And he commands a demon to come out of her. Now, here's why this is interesting. She, this slave girl, is a fortune teller. She's making a people money by telling fortunes about, you know, what will happen to them. And, they, and they, her owners are making a giant amount of money. And Paul says to this girl who just simply says, you know, your God's the number one God. I'm paraphrasing. Your God's the number one God. He says, stop, and commands a demon to come out of her. A demon comes out of her, and then she loses her ability to tell fortunes. And then those guys are like, hey, wait a second. I got some feedback going on here, too. Do I need another microphone? Am I okay? You want to hand me the handheld? And then another microphone was handed to them. All right. So we're like, oh, so they, uh, so this, this, this girl no longer can, can pronounce fortunes. So their owners go, wait a second. These guys are ruining our livelihoods. So no more fortune telling equals no more fortune. Let's get these guys. And so that's what they do. So this girl is released from whatever kind of demonic captivity that she's in. And then her captors say, we got to get these guys, Paul and Silas. Because they're ruining everything, so they get thrown in prison. And there's this situation now that, uh, that unfolds around them. They're in, they've been beaten, and they've been placed in prison, and they've been shackled to the floor. Next. About midnight, listen to this reaction, this is unbelievable. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Evidently, they're good singers. <laughs> now, I mean, imagine this. They've just released a girl from captivity. She has been, I mean, demonic captivity, and now her owners are frustrated, to say the least. Paul and Silas get beaten. Luke, who's writing this, the, the guy who wrote the book of Luke, he's also writing the book of Acts, and he's recording this stuff. So he's like watching this stuff happen. And Paul and Silas are in prison, shackled together after having been beaten, and they're like, five, six, seven, eight. And they just start singing. <laughs> I mean, it's like this. I mean, now you get, you tend to like take a list of like the top 10 things people do when they're unlawfully in prison, when they're unfairly put, placed in prison. I mean, maybe praying would be like number one God, get me out of this. Whatever I did, I'm sorry. Whatever, whatever, you get that. But singing? They're singing. I mean, it's like, wow. And the other, somehow the, 
Other people are benefiting from their singing. Now, their situation is one in which the biggest thing in their life clearly has to be, I'm in prison, I've been beaten. This is the biggest thing in my life. It's a big nightmare. And they sing. I mean, this is kind of, this is kind of unheard of. We don't know this. I mean, I, I don't get to that place in my life. But somehow or another, when they sing, it has an impact on the other prisoners. Somehow what Luke records, the guy writing the book of Acts, is, you know, this, the book of Acts is basically just a description of the early church after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And so you have then this picture of these people, there's some kind of impact on the, positive, on the, on the passive listeners here. So they sing. Paul and Silas have no assurance of anything except that they're in prison. They've been beaten and they're locked together. And yet, they sing. I have no explanation for this. I can't fathom this. I would understand better if they wept and cried, if they punched the walls, if they, you know, even if they fought each other. Like, what would you do? Why would you have to do? I mean, I, I would understand that kind of stuff. But they sing. It's, almost, it's like, are they unaware that they're in a prison? Are they in denial? Is there something that I missed? Now, when I think about denial, for us, we start thinking about the biggest things in our lives. There are two ways this shows up in our lives. One is this. We say simply it's the, most, the, most, the easiest way to imagine denial. The first one is to say that's just simply not true, that we look at the reality and declare it to be untrue. It's like when something really bad happens and you go, it's just not bad. No, it's bad. I got in a car accident. It's not bad. No, it's bad. Someone in my family got hurt or is sick or I'm in trouble and it's really, really awful, but it's not, it's not that big a deal. No, it's a big deal. That's the now when we just sort of say it's not. That's just acknowledging that the truth of something is not actually the truth of it. But the second way, this is more common to all of us, when we encounter real situations of real pain and trial, this is more common. See if you relate to this. I know this is where I land. We encounter something that's difficult or really difficult and we say, well, by comparison, it's just not that big a deal. And we start wondering if our pain, we're allowed to start feeling pain, if it's really big enough to start warranting some real struggle. Well, I lost a limb, but some people lose two limbs. It's like, when, you know, like, when do you get to acknowledge that it's, not, that it's not okay? I mean, when we suffer, it's pretty easy to start denying the reality of the suffering that we're in. Because we start saying other people have it worse than us. Paul and Silas don't appear to be doing this, but there's still this kind of sense about me that goes, are they, how are they able to do this? When you encounter people who no one understands suffering in a very real and honest way, and yet they still are able to sing whatever that might look like. It's kind of a surprising deal. I want to read to you an excerpt from a blog. It's uh, from a woman who's on our staff. She's leaving our staff. You'll understand why in a second. Not Rachel. And you'll understand in a second. She's, uh, her and her husband have two, two boys. One of them has been diagnosed with a terminal illness. And um, I want to read to you. Ooh, it's going to be hard for me to get through this. I want to read to you from her blog, and then I want you to get a picture of what it looks like to sing in the midst of real and honest trial. So she, I'm going to read a little bit, and you're just going to have to hang with me. This is unbelievable stuff. She writes, 
It's quiet in my house. As always, my thoughts are running a million miles a minute. I'm thinking about Titus. This is her oldest son who's recently been diagnosed. Always Titus and the rest of my family. About the hope I have for the future for Eli, her other son. And while my mind is terrified of the results we could find once he's tested, I'm thinking about the thousands who are supporting us. I'm thinking about the things I'm learning about God that are just at the tip of my reach. Like I know what, I, what it is I'm learning, and yet it's still so profound and mysterious. And then my mind begins to shape this conversation with Satan. <laughs> it goes something like this, she says. You think you've got this, don't you? You think you've got me down. I'll tell you what, it's been a valiant effort, and I'm broken, that's for sure, and I'm scared, and I'm angry. But that doesn't equal out to being yours. Because I'll tell you what, Satan, you have to, you have to understand, I'm, not, I'm just the front lines in this story with, with a huge army behind me. And when I go down, I will be pulled from that carnage. I will be carried away from it. I will be cared for, and I will be loved. You have to take down my neighbor who stands by us and supports us in the daily grind. You have to take down the friends who have felt lost and difficult parenting themselves and have chosen to support us and each other. You have to take down the thousands who are praying for strength and peace and joy and healing. You have to take down those who have chosen to support us through cards and money and hugs. You have to take down the first grade class who made cards to encourage our son. You have to take down a family who loves each other and stands by each other through the thick and the thin. You have to take down moms. Yeah, those are the worst ones who intercede on our behalf with a full heart of mommy love. And you wonder why I'm so strong, why I don't just fall. Because God has used my community to reinforce what I already know, that he loves us and that we are not alone. And I will do the very same for anyone else who finds themselves battling on the front lines in their story. Satan, you need to know you can't steal my joy. But, she says, not yet, not, don't, don't hold it. We're going to get there in a second. But, and she, and she ends this conversation, she, now she addresses the person reading. If you could have opened a window into my world this past week, you would have found myself and the boys driving home from a meeting singing, I love balloons, I love, I love balloons. If you know, that, if you know the tune to that song, I'm sorry, it's now stuck in your head. My boys were laughing and giggling, and I was acting like a crazy mom, and it was joyful. You would have, you would have seen our boys give each other the best and funniest, by the way, they were laughing, hugs and kisses at bedtime. You would have found a boy excited to go to school and teachers who hugged him and welcomed him back and told me that his smile and laugh brightens their day. You would have seen us walking Titus's dog, Sonny, and breathing in the fresh air while helping Titus keep his strength and letting Eli run his energy out. These are the moments I cling to. Because we have other moments, moments of panic when Titus starts seizing. Moments of fits because he can't communicate like he used to and no one understands. Moments of tube cleanings and diaper changes of both my boys. Moments of no sleep at night and pain that I can't ease. Moments of guilt as I try to continue to parent both my children while one requires the majority of my time. Moments of failure I give up, as I give up things I never thought God would ask me to give up because I can't do it all. I got to say this, being buried under the ugly imperfections that this world, dishes, the world has, dishes out to us has in turn made me even more clear even more clear the beauty of God. The contrast is starkly drastic. I didn't notice it like I do now. When I'm comfortable, I'm not looking for it, but now I live it, live for it, and I need it. I need his goodness, his beauty in the ugly when there is no other way to survive. Now, I want to highlight two lines from that writing. Satan, you need to know you can't steal my joy. In my experience and in my own life, I have found that my joy can be stolen. 
And so when someone says, in the midst of real trial, addressing, <laughs> addressing Satan himself, you can't steal my joy. There is something that happens to me that I go, there is something God wants to do in the midst of real trial. And then she says this other line. I need his goodness, his beauty, in the ugly when there is no other way to survive. The biggest thing in her life, the biggest thing that her and Danny face, her name's Becca, the biggest thing that they face apparently isn't the biggest thing. That somehow or another, the best way to describe this is the word transcendence, that somehow something is transcending their experience of being parents for a really sick, for a really sick son. That that's not the biggest thing. And when she says, I can sing about balloons in the car with my kid, I believe her. I don't think she's in denial, and her writing's pretty clear about it, and neither Paul and Silas, and they're able to say, we can sing. Like the biggest, most apparent, and in most cases, awful thing in our lives doesn't seem to be the biggest thing. This is what people do in the Bible. They find a way to be reset in the midst of the most difficult trial. Psalm 71 says it this way. The authorship of this psalm isn't really known. Some people think it's a guy named Jeremiah, if you know who that is. But anyway, here's what it says. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They say God has forsaken him, meaning that they're talking about him. Pursue him and seize him, for no one will rescue him. Now what's being said here is God is not there for you, writer. We all know he's not there, so let's go get him. Then listen, listen to this honest prayer here. Do not be far from me, my God. Come quickly, God, to help me. May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. That's honest. And then he says this. As for me, I will always have hope. I will praise you more and more. Always have hope. This is the biblical, this is the, this is the thing that's the most elusive thing, the, the most, probably the most elusive concept in the Bible for me. That people in the midst of real trial go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move towards singing. I'm going to move towards praise. I'm going to move towards a place in which no matter what the circumstances are, I'm going to say, God, it's about you. It is for you, God. It's going to be about you. I'll always have hope. First Thessalonians, sorry, here we go. First Thessalonians chapter 5 says this way. Rejoice always. I don't know how to do that. Pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now, I want you to understand, look at this really closely. This is not give thanks for all circumstances in Christ Jesus. It is not that people have an impression, folks that are new, maybe you have an impression about what Christians are about. It is not finding a reason to celebrate every bad thing that happens. Isn't this great news? I lost my job. No, no, no. It's about in the midst of some kind, it's the, in the midst of the captivity, in the midst of the prison, we say, we can find a way to be thankful. The Apostle Paul writes, periodically he writes, and always be thankful. Like as if this is one of the ways that marks Christians as being people who live out such a way that they find a way in which to say, in the midst of real suffering, we can say thank you. So how does the psalmist say, I'll always have hope? How does Becca sing about balloons? How is it that we're able to laugh? How is it that we're able to do this? How do Paul and Silas sing? Because life is hard. And yet, 
It's as if there's this singing which initiates a reset for them bigger than they could have imagined. Now, check this out, verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake in the foundations that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Now, notice this. It's really critical. It isn't just simply that Paul and Silas's chains were, were unshackled, that the beneficiaries of, of this kind of thinking and living and belief were everybody in the prison, whether or not they deserved it to be free. I mean, we can assume that there's other people that are there who are hardened criminals, who deserve to be there, and yet... God, this is clearly the incident is attributed to God. There's this reset that happens after the praise in which everybody benefits. That freedom is being experienced by people who didn't even anticipate that it could ever come because two people say we're going to sing in the midst of this prison. Everybody seems to benefit that there is... There is something about what's going on here which is powerful and bigger than them. Now, it's important to know. It's not that they caused by the way of their words or the song selection that they chose or that they, because it was some kind of magical incantation of a prayer, that God was forced to do this kind of thing. That's not how God works. It's not like the, we had a deal, God. I sing this song, the one you wanted me to sing, and I pray the right words, and then you do stuff. No, 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 it's different than that. It's like there's a faithful anticipation of the future that God could bring about, that they are living in that reality before it even exists. Like, does it, does it make sense? In other words, what they're saying is, God, I know that you could do something that I could see on the other side, but I don't, I, it's not right here, right now, but I'm going to live as if it could be because you're a God who breaks free. You break things through. And so I'm going to pray and I'm going to sing. It's like the singing points to the reality of what's about to happen for them. And they live in such a way, even in the prison like this, it's like they have this as their guiding idea. We will not act, think, or speak like prisoners even when we are imprisoned. We live in a world, we live in our lives in which we are constantly overwhelmed by things. And what would it look like then for us to live as though... We are imprisoned, but not acting like, or thinking, or behaving, or living, or speaking like prisoners. There's something powerful about what they do in this moment. What does it look like for people to live as though they are not captives? It's like saying a prison cannot make us prisoners. Now, there are prisons we have encountered that are because of the circumstances of our life. We did not choose them. They were chosen for us. We walked into circumstances or trial or calamity that are just a part of our life that we did not choose. And we need God's rescue. We need his reset in the midst of it. And we're wondering how in the world, I'll, I'll, I'll start singing and I'll pray or whatever I gotta do after this is over. That's what most of us will say. That's what I tend to say. But if there's anything from this picture about what, Paul and Silas are encountering, it's that there is a way in which they get to experience a kind of freedom in the midst of a circumstance they did not cause. And then there are the prisons that we do cause. The addictions we face, the struggles that we encounter, 
the choices that we've made, those kinds of things. And we tend to think, which is so devastating, we tend to think for ourselves, I've made bad choices and the pain I feel, the prison that I'm in, I'm supposed to feel this way. God wants me to live like this. this is, I know I can't ask him to help me yet because this is how God, this is part of the consequences. I should live like this forever. And yet God says, why don't you call to me? Let me bring about the rescue that you, it may be surprising, but let me, why don't you call to me? And I will bring about a rescue that you could never possibly have imagined. Because I never want anybody in any circumstance in their life to live in captivity. I want freedom. That's the reset. And it will look different than anybody expects. It will look different than anybody else probably could have ever anticipated. But we want freedom. The trouble for most of us is, is that when these things become the biggest things in our life, that's all we can think about. That's all we can think about. And suddenly the thing that has all of our attention, whatever that biggest thing is in your life, it has all of your attention, all of your focus, all of your energy. People around you are focused on that same thing for you. And you're, I mean, it's like you have garnered all kinds of attention on this one thing. And somehow it seems to be only getting bigger, larger. I'm going to try an experiment with you really quickly, a thought experiment. All right? So you have to trust me. Close your eyes for just a second. I want you to imagine for just a moment... I want whatever you do over the next 30 seconds or so, I want you to not think about toast. Toast, you know, toast. You piece, take a piece of bread out, you unwrap the, the, the wrapper. Don't think about toast. You take a piece of bread out and you place it in the toaster. You, some of you have a toaster oven. Others of you have the slots that you put the toast in. You slide the button down. You can smell the toast in your kitchen. Don't think about toast. Now, you can, some of you, you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about toast, right? Of course, where you're, you can imagine it coming. You remember what your grandfather used to put on his toast. The butter would crut, like, just sort of melt over the, over the nooks and crannies. Thomas is English muffin. Uh, over, the bre- over the bread. And they would, you know, you could see the jam that your grandfather, you would have when you were a kid. And you just don't think about toast. It is almost, okay, we're done. Thought experiment over. It is almost impossible. Some of you will lie. I'll go, how many of you guys are able to not think about toast? And there'll be like three of you who are like, I didn't. I was thinking about bagels, so I win. Okay, whatever. <laughs> You're not fun. Okay. The point is this. When the biggest thing in our life is the biggest thing only, it becomes something. And it starts to rule over us. I want you to watch the way in which Paul and Silas handle this scenario. Check this out. So the shackles have come off. Prisoners are like, we're free. Look what they do. The jailer woke up. Whoops, he fell asleep. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped, which is kind of a strong reaction. <laughs> oh, my gosh, everybody's gone. Shh. You know, like he's about to stab himself. Now, you have to understand a little bit of context here. This is in Rome. Soldiers don't get to make mistakes. If you make a mistake, you get killed. So he's like, well, I'm going to die anyways. Might as well just do it here, you know, instead of having to face a trial and all that. Just... I'll just do it right. I'll kill myself. No, because these prisoners have escaped. So now what's even more bizarre, so you have the guard, because the prisoners have now been set free, is a suicide risk. And what's even more bizarre is verse 28. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The guy who has imprisoned them is about to kill himself. The guy who's keeping them captive. And the captives who now could run away say, don't. We're not going anywhere. We don't want any harm to come to you, and we're not running away. Trust me, if I've been unlawfully, unreasonably imprisoned, and the shackles come off and the doors fly open, 
I am running. <laughs> Hope you don't kill yourself, guard. I mean, I'm really, it's like, you know, like, I'm out of there. I mean, that's literally how I feel. Maybe it's a little crass, but that's really how I would feel. And they say, don't do it. Don't, we're right here. We haven't run. Now, if you, get, you, you encounter in this situation two of the greatest markers of, boom, there we go, two of the greatest markers of freedom. We're going to talk more about the first one in a couple weeks, but here's the first one is this. The first and greatest marker of freedom is this. When those who hold us captive are the recipients of our mercy and not our vengeance. That is a marker of a kind of freedom that is transcendent. We could say, Paul and Silas could say, hey, sneak out, let him knife himself, and we're gone. We got work to do. But they give him mercy. No, 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 don't. We're not going anywhere. And the second thing, it's a little more difficult to write. We're going to talk more about this in a couple weeks, though. But more, even more kind of difficult to explain is this. The greatest marker of freedom, number two, when circumstances demand that we run and we exercise our free right to not run. I mean... That is an incredible, they can run away and be free, but they say we're free and we're staying right here. There's something about, it's like they believe or understand or know something about being in captivity that says, even if we're here, we're not going to live as though this prison is the biggest thing in our lives. God has got something bigger for us than this prison. Because whenever something takes on the role of the biggest thing, occupying our thoughts, our energy, our focus, our intensity, it, it, it is something else. It becomes something called worship. And in the most bizarre, strange way, the biggest things in our life, even the most crippling, awful things in our life, the things we resist can become worship. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing in a moment. We're going to respond. And some of you will sing for one, you'll sing for one of two reasons, okay? We need a reset in the midst of real life that has happened to us in our present reality. We need that. Because the reality, we cannot wait for a moment when things are great and then we'll start singing or praying. No, 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 no. We need it right now. But here's how I think about it. We sing because something is already true. God, you have already been, you have done, you have accomplished. We can find reasons to be grateful. We can say with confidence and we can sing out about those things in our life because it's already been true. God, you have delivered. You have been good. You have made good on your promises. And others of us will sing for this reason. Because something could become true. God, I need a rescue. And I need to know and I need to believe that you are still good. And so I'm going to sing. I'm going to sing like I never have. I'm going to respond bigger than ever because I know, I, I, like it's a prayer of anticipation and hope that this could become the reality because I need it. I'm trapped and the biggest thing in my life right now is the way in which I'm trapped and I need you to help me out of it, even though I don't see it right now. So, here's what we're going to do. Why don't you stand up right now? Banting, I'm going to pray. Why don't you stand up right now? And we're going to do something a little different. If you've been with us before. You're going to have to stretch a little, so be ready. What I want you to do, in light of kind of what of Becca's blog, I want you to hold hands with people next to you. I mean, that means like everybody, even the strangers and stuff, you know? Like, not just people that you're like, look at a person next to you, you can hold their hand. Now, everybody's going to be holding hands. It's not just the person you came with, but everybody. It means you've got to stretch across. There we go. Good job. Stretch across the aisle. What you're saying is, we are in this together. We are a church community. Even though we may not fully know each other at all, it is the group, as Becca writes, the community that has been a part of this rescue that has reminded her about freedom. 
and so we'll sing. And everybody will benefit from the singing, whether or not they deserve it. Some of you are like, yeah, I sing pretty bad. They deserve my singing. I don't like this person. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. Let's pray and then let's sing. Jesus, hear our voices. We are in need of a reset in the most difficult and most painful trials of our life. We don't have answers, but we need you. Father, we know that you can turn a prison into a place of refuge and freedom in a way that is so surprising. Father, help us to find a way out that starts first with us orienting ourselves toward you. And so, Father, hear our prayer as we sing together as a group, responding to you. So, Jesus, this is our prayer. It is our voice lifted to you as we sing. In your name, amen.